Welcome to Side Effects May Vary, the podcast from the Monash Faculty of Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Sciences. I'm John Palmer. In each episode of this series, we want to examine a medicine or a type of treatment or disease that we have some degree of expertise in here, and we want to try and trace the impact that that medicine or treatment or disease has had, how it has shaped society and history and economics and culture. So our plan is to use experts from the other nine faculties here at Monash to trace the ripples of that impact, whether legal or economic or cultural or, or whatever. So that's the plan. But the thing about plans is that, as Mike Tyson once said, everyone has one until they get punched in the mouth. And the thing that has punched us in the mouth is the same thing that has punched the rest of the world in the mouth lately, which is to say, COVID-19. This is perhaps the biggest global event of the past 50 or 60 years, and if you're doing some work in this space, which we are, it would be super weird not to cover it. So here we go with the debut episode that will be entirely unlike every other episode in the series. Coronavirus. Opposite our campus, there's this park with a track around the outside, which a lot of people who work here or study here or live in the surrounding suburbs used to go running. And about two or three weeks into the first lockdown, these signs started to appear on sandwich boards at regular intervals around the perimeter. Uh, They have quite a lot of text on them. The headline, which is very easy to read, is in all caps and bright green, quite large, and it says, stay safe, which is hard to disagree with. Who doesn't want to stay safe? And then it goes on in slightly smaller text, still green, still all in caps, still pretty legible, to say, on the Prince's Park running track. Which I suppose could be quite useful for people who don't know where they are, like if you've just teleported there or something. Then it goes down to the next tier of copy, to a sort of subhead, which is now black in sentence case, and small enough that you probably have to stop running if you want to read it. It says, important update regarding novel coronavirus, open bracket, COVID-19, close bracket. And then, in small enough text that you definitely have to stop to read it, and you might even have to crouch down depending upon your eyesight, it says, When enjoying the Princess Park running track, limit gatherings to two people only and practice physical distancing by keeping at least 1.5 metres away from others. Now, in its defence, I should point out that the words two people only and the words 1.5 metres are bolded for emphasis, but I still find this a really bizarre set of choices. If your goal is to affect change in people's actions, then burying that information right down the bottom in small type seems a strange way to pursue it. And it feels to me like this is a microcosm of the way that many of us, at least in Australia, have experienced the health response to the pandemic, which is to say that although we know there is all this crazy complicated stuff going on backstage, out of our view, the stuff in front of the curtain, the stuff we can see, has presented itself primarily as a set of really thorny communications challenges. Communications challenges based on fragmentary, rapidly evolving data. So, for example, we've all debated the semiotics of wearing masks. The science seems largely settled now in their favour, but for a while there was intense discussion about whether they created a false sense of security that actually outweighed the benefits they delivered in preventing transmission. Here in Melbourne, there's been a lot of talk about the Black Lives Matter protests, Even though the overwhelming weight of evidence fails to suggest that any transmission took place there, some sections of the commentariat have argued that the mere fact that many people gathered publicly sent a signal that the danger had passed. In the absence of sports to watch, we've assessed the communication style of various political leaders. Do you go straight to the detail of whatever safety measures you're announcing, or do you spend a few minutes first setting up framing? We've seen both styles. When you're making the guidelines, do you try and err on the side of simplicity, which makes those rules easier to communicate and follow? 
or do you try and accommodate to some degree the wide range of individual needs and circumstances through a series of exceptions, which might produce a more just result but also adds to complexity and risks greater confusion? Arguably, it's fair to say that one of the great pastimes of lockdown has been Monday morning quarterbacking this stuff, critiquing not just the substance of any public health measure, but the style in which it was delivered. We're all entitled to our opinions, of course, but I thought it might be helpful to talk with someone with real expertise in the field of public health response to a pandemic. So, Tina Brock is the director of our pharmacy course here at Monash. Uh, in addition to being an educator, she's also spent a lot of time in uh, Liberia and other resource poor settings, and actually supported a team in Liberia during the Ebola pandemic in 2014. So, I wanted to know from her, given all of the stuff that she's seen recently, both in uh, her home country of the US or Australia where she now lives, I wanted to know what is the one thing that she wishes that people understood better. Her answer surprised me. One of the things about this whole situation that this has really highlighted to me is the unfortunate power of fake news. And, you know, whether you're here in Australia, whether you're back home where my parents are in the United States, I don't, I think I always downplayed how influential non-science-based information is and how the social media realm really games that in a way that I'm not sure the average citizen understands. I didn't really even understand it until I began to look at what I see on social media versus what my parents see on social media and how different those messages are. And even, um, you know, again, for my parents in the U.S., I'm, I like show them pictures of Tony Fauci and I say, listen to this man. If he says do it, do it immediately. And, and you know, the power of fear the power of fear. I, um, I've been quite proud of the response here in Victoria, and I feel like there have been things that were difficult for me to do, but they were the right things for me to do, not just for my own health, because in the grand scheme of things, I'm relatively healthy, and I'm just entering the demographic most affected. But, you know, it's not about me. It's about our community and keeping our community safe. And so, there were things that you know were, were harder for me to do, and yet I felt that those were very important things for, for me to do. You know, there's such a, a very powerful um, movement that I had previously been acquainted with anti-vax movement. So people who, you know, fear vaccinations and share that information um, especially widely, and to see how quickly that has flipped into this paranoid system, it, it is a bit scary. And I feel quite fortunate that I'm, you know, part of a scientific community and I have access to, and when I mean by access, it means I can read scientific studies and I can interpret these. But that is not most people. Most people don't have the advantage of that community. And so, you know, the importance of providing very clear, very simple, very straightforward language, um, you know, is even more critical and how the, the change for me is how pharmacists communicate about medicines. We need to do a much better job because if we don't, this sort of zeitgeist of fake information is really, really powerful. Fake news is the virus that I'm most worried about. It absolutely is because everything about this affects other things in our health behaviors, right? If you mistrust this system, then 
anything else I tell you is, is you know, you're, you're skeptical of, which means you might not take, you know, does this change whether you get your teeth cleaned regularly? Does it change whether you get your blood pressure checked regularly? Does it change your diet? You know, all these things, the virality of that fake news is not just, you know, that will persist. And so we, we can't just assume that everybody's getting that same level of information. One of the things that speaking with Tina highlighted for us was that there's a serious disconnect between the level of certainty that the public wants in a crisis like this and the level of certainty that officials are equipped to provide because it's very difficult for anyone to be certain of the facts. A really good example of this in the COVID-19 pandemic has been the suggestions that have arisen around the use of hydroxychloroquine as a treatment. You will recall that in early April, hydroxychloroquine got a lot of attention after US President Donald Trump began talking it up. His recommendation wasn't entirely without foundation. A small Chinese study had suggested that hydroxychloroquine could retard the virus's entry into host cells and uh, inhibit its replication. And another French study of a similar size showed decreasing viral levels in patients after treatment with hydroxychloroquine. So there was some basis to suppose that it, it might be useful. Um, and this poses a really interesting question. In a situation where the facts are rapidly evolving and evidence is emerging, how do people who have to make those big life or death decisions, that is to say in our case doctors and pharmacists, determine what the best available evidence is. So in this case, should they or should they not prescribe or dispense hydroxychloroquine to COVID-19 patients? Now, as it happens, we have a research theme that concerns itself with precisely that question. Simon Bell is the director of the Center for Medicine Use and Safety here at Monash Parkville. And together with one of our other researchers, Dr. Darren Creek, and with Simon's father, John Bell, who's also a pharmacist, Simon reviewed the existing evidence on hydroxychloroquine. On the 8th of April, they published a short article in the Australian Journal of General Practice, and shortly thereafter, it was republished on the website of the Royal Australian College of General Practitioners. Um, I'll spare you the suspense. It concluded, There are currently no convincing data from human studies to support the efficacy of hydroxychloroquine for prophylaxis or treatment of COVID-19. Doing so risks unnecessarily exposing people to side effects and depriving people with approved indications from accessing their medication. It particularly focused on the issue of potential downsides to prescribing hydroxychloroquine. I'm going to read a bit from earlier in the piece. In contrast to the lack of efficacy data, the side effect profile of hydroxychloroquine is well established following more than 70 years of clinical use as an antimalarial and immunomodulatory agent. Infrequent and rare side effects include retinal toxicity, cardiac toxicity, QT interval prolongation, and a granulocytosis. Cardiac side effects may be of particular relevance given that COVID-19 is more severe in older people who are also likely to have cardiovascular comorbidity. I wanted to talk to Simon to get a sense of the lens through which they were approaching this problem and, and put the article in context. There's been a lot of debate uh, in recent uh, months and weeks uh, about what's called off-label prescribing. So off-label medication use sometimes occurs where we have grounds for example, based on the, the likely mechanism of action of a particular medication, uh, we have grounds to suspect a medication may be beneficial. Um, as more and more evidence becomes available, that may or may not be the case. The recent example of hydroxychloroquine is a, is a good one when we think about off-label uh, medication use. And so hydroxychloroquine is a medication that's been uh, around for a long time, originally as an anti-malarial. It's also prescribed for uh, rheumatoid arthritis and for, for lupus. Um, 
when we found that it was being prescribed for uh, coronavirus, uh, that was a good example of an off-label use of that medication. It's not an approved indication for that particular medication. Um, it's prescribed, it was prescribed for that indication, I think, in the absence of other effective alternatives. Um, this did raise a lot of concerns at, at the time, and I think it is important that um, if we do prescribe off-label, that we still have evidence for prescribing that medication. So um, regardless of whether a medication is approved for a particular indication, it's important that we always prescribe in accordance with the best available evidence. It's also important to recognise that the best available evidence changes over time and new research is published all the time. And that's exactly what we've seen with hydroxychloroquine. Uh, after it was initially put forward as a, a cure for coronavirus, further research has been done and that research has, has questioned the, uh, whether or not that medication is, uh, is effective. And uh, the most recent research suggests that it's not effective for treating coronavirus and uh, it may actually um, predispose people to experiencing um, adverse events. Obviously, if people demand a particular medication and the, the coronavirus experience is, is a good one, there was a, a demand for a cure for a medication that was likely to be effective. Uh, so people often look for information that may support their, their desire to, for an effective treatment. Um, I think uh, almost all clinicians prescribe with the, the patient's best interest in mind, um, but it's really about how we interpret and apply evidence that's, that's important. People often are... I think, uh, attracted by the, the various, you know, the hype or what they read in, in the media. And I think it's important that um, people, they, they can certainly use that information, they can, can read about that, that is important. Um, but we would certainly encourage people to speak with their, their pharmacist or their doctor to be able to interpret uh, that information. And, uh, of course, just because it's published in the, the media doesn't necessarily mean that that's, that treatment is the best available treatment for that particular indication. Um, but as more and more inf information becomes available, it becomes more and more important that we're able to critically evaluate that information to inform the decision about whether or not we decide to take a medication or in the case of a, a doctor or a pharmacist to prescribe or dispense that particular medication. One thing that struck us listening to Tina and Simon side by side like that was a difference in their level of faith and the ability of good information to drive out bad information. And that's probably a product of the two audiences they have in mind. Simon is talking to an audience of clinicians who are people who presumably have some level of shared understanding of the world, a common set of premises they're working from, and even a broadly agreed set of rules about how evidence is assessed and interpreted. Whereas Tina is talking about the rest of us who don't necessarily have any of those things. And as Tina points out, the absence of this common ground is exacerbated by the internet with its ability to provide you with support for any belief you might desire to hold, and also by social media in particular with its ability to wrap you in a cocoon of like-minded people. Now, as a faculty of pharmacy and pharmaceutical sciences, we don't have a tremendous concentration of expertise that would suggest how to deal with that problem, but luckily we are part of a much larger university that has concentrations of expertise in just about everything. This next segment is with a researcher called Mark Andreevich, who is a professor at our School of Media, Film and Journalism. It's actually taken from an excellent podcast called What Happens Next, which comes out of the university as a whole rather than any particular faculty, and which I unreservedly recommend. They did three episodes on fake news, all of which are excellent, but it was this grab from Mark that we thought was the most relevant to the issues Tina was raising. The other voice you'll hear in there is Dr. Susan Carland, who is the presenter of What Happens Next. 
everything that we can do to foster a sense of understanding of interdependence and to find ways to reinforce the information uh, and the practices uh, that allow us to function in a, in a democratic society. All of those things seem important. You know, one thing that happens on social media is um, because engagement and sharing are in a sense content neutral, right, and they're privileged, um, if you share misinformation or disinformation, even to point out how wrong it is, you're actually contributing to its distribution online in ways that are perceived by the algorithmic systems as, oh, this person is interested in that, and that particular story lots of people are interested in will make it trend. You know, in the U.S., one of the things that they found out after the school shooting of the students in Florida was a conspiracy theory video claiming that they were crisis actors and that this was all staged, you know, as a um, political conspiracy to take people's guns away. That became the top trending video on YouTube, not because people believed it, but because people were sharing it and saying, oh, my God, have you seen this? So I think one thing, you know, kind of deplatforming information and, and it's really tempting, and I, I'm sure I've done it, like, oh, can you believe that this is circulating online? Check yeah. this out. Don't do that, right? You know, find the ways to tamp down the spread of, of the misinformation and disinformation. And, of course, find strategies for countering and asserting, um, you know, the, the practices and the information that contribute to understanding what's actually going on. And that, you know, that has to do... I think with our social spheres, you know, what do you do when you encounter somebody, a friend, <laughs> who's a conspiracy theorist? How do you how do you handle that? It's not easy. I've been in those situations of conversations <laughs> with conspiracy theorists. It's very tricky. You know, if you try to argue against them, you've automatically shown that you're a dupe and that you're actually on the other side. I've been interested by the example of, I, I don't know if you've seen him online, there's a, a U.S. historian named Kevin Cruz, and, and he spent a lot of time engaging with Dinesh D'Souza, the kind of right-wing, um, you know, propagandist and, and spreader of huge historical inaccuracies <laughs> and conspiracies. And as a historian, he's tried to correct D'Souza's um, fake histories or inaccurate histories. Uh, and what, what he said is, I don't have any illusions that I'm going to convince D'Souza. Mm. I do this for the community of folks for whom it would be useful to have the actual historical information and have that information so if they encounter this in their daily lives, they also have the facts. And I think that is an important thing to do because, again, if you've ever encountered folks who go off on their conspiracy theories and, and inaccurate histories, they often have a quite well-developed story that they've picked up and rehearsed in, you know, in chat rooms or uh, conversations where they get this information. Very often it's tempting to just dismiss them, Sky, oh, yeah, you're a conspiracy theorist. I do think it's important to educate ourselves so that we have the historical knowledge to the extent that we can get it, to tell a coherent, plausible counter-narrative that actually points out some of the inconsistencies and inaccuracies in those stories. I don't think it's necessarily going to convince somebody who doesn't believe in facts, but it's going to fortify us with a clear understanding of the world and give us the tools to communicate to others who might be more open to listening uh, and, and understanding. So the other front in which you'd expect a faculty of pharmacy and pharmaceutical sciences to be engaged in the battle against coronavirus is in developing new medicines, be they treatments or vaccines. And it turns out that we are. 
Harriel Wasiti and Estelle Soyes have been working under the direction of one of our senior researchers, Professor Colin Powton, to create three vaccine candidates for novel coronavirus. Now, they're clearly not the only people in the world doing this. At the time of this recording, there are something like 140 vaccine candidates being tracked by the World Health Organization. The vaccines created by Harry, Estelle and their team are mRNA vaccines. mRNA is short for messenger RNA. It's the molecule that essentially puts DNA instructions into actions. You may have heard that term because one of the candidates that is attracting the most attention internationally is also an mRNA vaccine. That's the one being developed by the American biotech company Moderna. mRNA is a pretty new technology in medicine. In fact, as yet there are no mRNA products approved for human use, uh, and it would therefore work quite differently from a traditional vaccine. Vaccines work by training the body to recognise and respond to the proteins produced by disease-causing organisms, in this case, a virus. Traditionally, that means that you take a form of the virus that is either inactive or very, very weak, weak enough not to pose a threat, and you use that to provoke the immune system into responding. An mRNA vaccine would be different because it would only use the mRNA from the virus rather than the whole thing. The Monash vaccine uses the mRNA not for the whole virus, but for just a part of it, the spike protein, which is the bit that enables the virus to penetrate the host cells and cause infection. And because it's the messenger RNA, which is essentially an instruction manual, the idea is that it will trick the body into producing some of the viral proteins itself. The language that Harry and Estelle use here is that it's like the vaccine will program the cell. And the hope is that this will allow our immune systems to raise antibodies against the spike protein that will neutralize the virus when the body sees it and prevent infection. If the technology works, the advantages would be numerous. It should be both faster and cheaper to produce than conventional vaccine for a start. What struck me was just how quickly all of this has happened. And I mean that in two senses. I mean it in the sense of the development of the treatment, because it was only in mid-January that Chinese researchers released the genomic sequence for the novel coronavirus, which is hardly any time at all in drug development terms. But I also mean it in terms of Harry and Estelle. When I began working here four and a half years ago, Harry was only a few weeks into his PhD, and Estelle hadn't even started hers yet. I want to know how that happened. How did these two young researchers find themselves so quickly at the coalface of efforts to solve a global pandemic? We are a group of people, a PhD students and a couple of postdocs. We collaborate quite a lot to um, develop therapies, which was what we particularly do at MIPS, which is the Monash Institute of Pharmaceutical Sciences. COVID broke out and we put all our efforts together to uh, develop a vaccine uh, based on the knowledge that we have here and the expertise that we have within our lab. Our lab um, is focused on gene delivery technologies, uh, more specifically uh, mRNA formulations. mRNA encodes for the message to, for the body or for the cell to then make a functional protein. Um, and in this case for COVID, the functional protein would be a viral envelope or the viral spike protein in this case. So that the body would then, based on the mRNA, the body makes that viral protein and would get immunized against uh, COVID. Um, we were kind of well suited to respond to that because we already had developed some technology to which we call the rapid response um, from its name to uh, specifically for that purpose and for, you know, um, other purposes such as, you know, making sure that we are catching up with how the influenza mutates 
and we can address that because of how fast we can develop the vaccines. Um, we were already in a very strong team with a lot of different people from different backgrounds, but also bringing their own expertise into the project. So that's really good to already have. And then we were working on several other projects and then Corona hit. And we suddenly thought, well, this is actually quite a good opportunity to contribute with all the knowledge that we have towards something that will make a huge impact if it works. You know, I think the really big test, you know, have, you know, if you face with a real world problem, then you go out and say, you know, try to, to, um, uh, to, tr to treat it or to solve that world problem. So that was in a way uh, when the, when the pandemic hit and became a real, started to become a real issue, then we asked, well, if we are going to say that the vaccine, that we can develop a vaccine within a few weeks, can we actually do it? Can we actually develop a vaccine? So we went for it. We were in the process of um, developing a new delivery system of a new formulation. Um, so we could immediately, what was good about this, if we, in sh very short term, we could immediately apply that and use that in, for the COVID research or for the COVID development. Um, and we had several other projects which are still ongoing, uh, for example, for influenza. Um, and it's the same principle. We know what we have to do to get there. We need to um, validate uh, what we have made. We, we already know what we have to do because we've done it before. And the difference now is that there's a different molecule in the delivery system. But the principle or the way of proceeding or conducting research are the same. Yeah, so we've actually built the vaccine, the actual component. We've built it within three weeks. We finished that um, and it was just for sitting in the fridge. The, you know, the long part that took so far um, was, uh, you know, approval of the, of the trial, the preclinical trials, and then actually doing that because that takes some time to then, you know, check the data and make sure that you can get to the point so that takes a month and a half to see that in preclinical models. But the actual vaccine, if you want to develop it, um, it's pretty, pretty quick. And that's what we call the rapid response. And that's really um, just the feature of the technology itself. It's just technology is, has that ability to be developed really quickly um, because it uses the mRNA, which is basically a sequence. So you, as long as you know the sequence, the letters of, that, of the antigen that you want to target, then you're you know, well suited to develop a vaccine pretty quickly. At the moment, the, the main hurdle is translating the, the data that shows that it's promising in human clinical trials, because obviously you don't want to cause more harm by administering something, but also something about the efficacy. And so that's why clinical trials are, are really needed. Um, and they are very costly, but also they are quite long because they need to they, those clinical trials, they need to um, be of a certain length in order to be able to gather enough data. So I think currently that is a problem because that is delaying, I guess, um, the actual final vaccine product. Because we need to have all these steps in order to guarantee uh, human safety, um, but also in order to guarantee um, that it's going to work. We wanted to finish up today's episode by giving a bit of a platform to some voices that you will almost never hear on this podcast because it's mostly based on the scientific research we conduct rather than the education we provide. So the voices I'm referring to are, of course, those of our students. 
all pharmacy training in Australia is really heavy on workplace learning. It's a five-year pathway to registration, and wherever you study, you have to do a year-long internship before you can register as a pharmacist. But our pharmacy program at Monash is particularly placement-focused because in those first four years before the internship, our students spend anywhere up to 110 days in hospitals and community pharmacies getting practical experience. So when lockdown rules started to bite, our placement team started to panic because we know how important it is to our model of education to have our students out there. And there was a fair bit of anxiety amongst the students themselves because they might not be able to complete those placements because they'd be caught by the rules. Uh, but it turned out that actually there was quite an increased need for pharmacists and for the pharmacy workforce. And it meant that many of our students actually got the chance to step up and take on far more advanced roles than they normally would have. My name's Leisha. I am a newly graduated pharmacist. Hi, I'm Jess. I'm Brody. And we're both fourth year Monash pharmacy students. Hi, my name is Stephen. I am a fourth year pharmacy student at Monash University. Um, so my name's Helen. I'm a fourth year pharmacy student um, at Monash. And um, recently I just completed a four week placement at a community um, pharmacy um, in Knox. We just completed our most recent placement, which was at Alfred Health. And this was during the COVID-19 global pandemic. And I've just finished my placement at Monash Hospital. So this is my first year as a registered pharmacist. And um, like everybody else, it's a once in a century experience in this pandemic. Uh, being in the hospital during the global pandemic was definitely a unique experience for us as students. Um, it was a little bit daunting going into the, the general pod where the COVID positive and suspected patients were. Everyone's obviously super busy and I knew that things would be possibly expected of me that weren't expected of me in previous placements. You know, from the first day, essentially, I was told that I may need to be, you know, taken out of my usual role as a student and kind of put to work, you know, made to do things, doing, you know, history taking, counselling, even discharging just by myself. It was really a sudden change as well, just because it didn't happen at the start of my placement. It was like kind of in the middle where everything changed. It wasn't the typical, I guess, placement in terms of like your learning how to dispense and how to like counsel patients. Um, it was just a really good experience to just have to become more flexible with my placement and to not expect what I typically would expect and try and adapt and just put myself in that position where I, I'm just there, I'm also there to help. I also want to like try and make a difference in the community. People would just ask, yeah, about like hydroxychloroquine and other drugs that may have been, you know, pushed to help with corona, things like that some supplements that had hardly any evidence that because someone's friend on WhatsApp told them to take it, they thought, oh, maybe I should try it. Because of the global pandemic, uh, some experiences that we had that we wouldn't otherwise have included um, ordering medications for nurses and patients in their individual isolation rooms and delivering them to the isolation rooms. This uh, allowed us to work as part of the multidisciplinary team as a student, which is not the usual opportunity we would have. I think one of the big things about working in these sort of environments is you have to be able to adapt to change and obviously very quickly as well. So having done our first placement there at the beginning of the year, we had become familiar with how they ran things 
back then. And then just within a, a matter of a few months, things escalated quite dramatically and they had to adapt a whole range of new protocols and new procedures and things that we then had to adapt to when we started placement as well. So I think just being able to overcome these challenges and just be flexible enough to fit into where you're needed would be beneficial. Yeah, so this experience was definitely a once-in-a-lifetime experience and I am glad that I did have the chance to experience it. So I was I was doing things on placement that I never thought that I would do. Yeah, I would definitely say that it would help me because it's allowed me to be more independent already. So you feel a little bit nervous to do that because I'm calling into the rooms and I have to announce myself as the student and what my role is because they don't necessarily know what my role is on placement. It allowed me to feel confident in my role and confident speaking to other healthcare professionals. I very much doubt it will be the last episode we make on coronavirus because it doesn't look like it's going away anytime soon. And with any like Harry and Estelle's story is far from over. And in fact, our next episode takes a look at a subject that I strongly suspect many people have had cause to consider while they've been living under lockdown, antidepressants. That episode should drop in a couple of weeks. Um, thanks to all of our interviewees today and to Jack Fitzgerald who spoke with them. This show is produced by me, Amy Chen, Divya Krishnan and Kate Carthew with sound production by Dave Rogers and original music by Dave Rogers. Please like or subscribe or do whatever it is you do to make sure you don't miss future episodes.